0: this is have you met my guest today is a world-renowned horticulturalist and plant hunter in the year 2000 while hunting for rare orchids in the dangerous darien gap in south america he and his travel companion were held up at gunpoint and kidnapped they were held captive for the next nine months they didn't know who had kidnapped them why they did it or if there was any chance of their survival we talk in detail about the unbelievable ordeal that they had to suffer through and my guest recalls some of his memories of it. He says talking about it feels like therapy to him. Have you met Tom Hart Dyke? So Tom, tell me how you first fell in love with plants.
1: Well, Ben, it was a, a summer's day, 1979. I was just three years of age. And my granny, my inspirational botanical granny, gave me a packet of carrot seeds and a trowel. And I've never looked back she was my best friend two generations older you know 60 plus years older some friends at school found that quite weird that your granny was (laughs) dropping you off at school but she was just such an inspiration to me and just turned to me and said Tom here's your carrot seeds in the trowel get your hands dirty if you don't lose plants you haven't learned anything and off you go and I've stuck to that rule ever since the age of three and never looked back and that's just me like granny was a self-taught
0: Botanical entity, a fantastic person.
1: Wow! So carrots—that
0: was where it all began. Carrots. I and know carrots.
1: Yeah, they're not like rare orchids from
0: Costa Rica <laughs> or
1: Colombia, but you've got to start somewhere. Ben. Exactly. You've got to start somewhere.
0: Exactly. So how did they go? The first, the first batch. Did they? Did you grow them? Did you, Did they all? Die or how, disaster.
1: Total and utter disaster. <laughs> Not one grew out and I had to go and get the carrots from the supermarket in the summer because nothing <laughs> happened. Total disaster. But it was that inspiration. And Granny, she, she died over ten years ago now. She was nearly ninety-six before she died. And in everything she did, she was inspiring, whether it was botanical painting, great old painter it's fantastic well, whether it was in the garden the more storms and hail and snow the better the more she was out there yeah. that just toughness and enthusiasm and for riding bikes, she stopped riding her mountain bike at 95 no way <laughs> yeah wow. and it, it was stuck in sixth gear for the last five years of her <laughs> life <laughs> i mean and we're talking hills around <laughs> kent where, where we are now i mean we're talking hilly she was amazing and that in every aspect was my inspiration but unusual relationship people did find that quite strange and it wasn't a friend you might meet at something called a pub or your your sister or, or or parents it was a generation or two above me but uh yeah fantastic fantastic person kindred spirits i suppose Absolutely. And just sue her enthusiasm for the world of plants in every single aspect. Well, my red my red blood cells were turning
0: green instantly. (laughs) I mean, she, she, she really inspired me so where did you go from the carrots the failed carrots like so was it immediately after that you're asking granny for more more seeds or is she kind of she's she's slipping you more seeds under the table and saying go and have a go with these ones and where did you go yeah, from yeah you pretty much got it so it, it was
1: violet <laughs> it was pansies, it was delphiniums it was Anyway, a lot of seeds that she was giving me, lots of pa- packets of seeds. I had my little vegetable plot, that six foot by six foot, which is then expanded to more ornamental plants. And it was from that point onwards that I realised I love the edibles and the medicinal plants. Yet yeah, they're fantastic, but it is the ornamental aspect that really does get me going, I have to say, and seeing fantastic sometimes gaudy to look at bright pink psychedelic things in flower is my actual, yeah, that's what really flicks my horticultural switch. If you like, I mean, that was just brilliant. And through the carrot seeds to growing ornamental plants, then to a serious border on the South facing wall, which is the best aspect you can have in the Southern, in the Northern hemisphere anyway, in the Southern hemisphere, it's the North facing wall. That's the sunniest. And that's where you can grow a whole wide range of of different plants. And it, it led from there. And I think the next step for me with granny was doing these small trips, whether it was to a local nature reserve in Kent or Southeast England somewhere, or whether it was going to a garden center, a specialist nursery, whatever it was, just seeing the world of plants, In the UK, we've got, in Europe generally, but in the UK in particular, such a wonderful access to the most amazing, diverse selection of native but also exotic plants for sale, whether it's garden centres, nurseries, superstores, whatever it is, and the world quite literally is your oyster. So that platform was building and building and building until then. Finally, for me, the trips abroad started to, to develop as a teenager. But that real inspiration through Granny, and at the age of 10 and 11 to have a nine foot long, 10 foot high and eight foot wide lean to glass house. Oh God, Ben. <laughs> I mean, that was me. It was me, it was a sweet shop. That was my sweet shop. I have a few friends, but not that many. They can't put up with all this. <laughs> and it's just, you just immerse yourself, kept in frost free conditions with a two kilowatt power wind fan heater, about four or five degrees above freezing. You can grow whatever you want. And it was seeing these plants, in the greenhouse from all over the world that led me to think, hmm, itchy feet time. What's it like to see these rare orchids, uh, Cape Primroses actually in the wild of wherever it may be. And that's what really started to make me think at the age of 17, 18, food granny, uh, the gardening outside and the
0: greenhouse, that next big step of going abroad to see plants in the wild. Wow. And we'll get to that in just a second. I mean, I I have to confess that I also was a big lover as a child as going to the garden center and like uh, the smells and, and all the colors. And that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Um, when you were kind of, you know, that 10, 11 age, you said you had that amazing greenhouse or glass house. And, I'm just interested to know kind of what the like your friends and stuff kind of how was that at school and like because obviously kids can be kids can be mean and things like that and obviously you kind of if you don't follow a very strict route of like you know being a tough kid and playing whatever sport and then things might not be so easy and I'm just interested to know yeah what were the other kids thoughts on your obsession and love for plants like did they give you kind of a hard time about that or yeah what was that? You would think so, especially with flowers, you know, and plants. I was into flowers and
1: plants since he was three. You'd think you'd be picked on the opposite. They thought I was a complete freak show. It's like the flower man. There's obviously a problem, which is completely accurate. And we're not going near him. I was never bullied once. And there wasn't actually the chance to be bullied because during any type of break time, during a day at school whatever school well, I was in the ground searching for orchids and other plants anyway so they couldn't find me I was always out of bounds searching for orchids but I was in more, in more trouble better than any other pupil <laughs> at school or student at college um, for not attending lessons was an issue yeah but also for always going out of bounds I was in more trouble than anyone else for doing and they were doing all sorts of other things that you do at school for me it was just going out of bounds in the ground I got always stood by by the alarm buzzer there that's sounded the brakes next to the headmaster's office standing there and staring at the wall for most of the day actually <laughs> always in trouble but it was that passion and um yeah you, you you can't it's in you it's there and it always will be and it's granny's yeah.
0: fault entirely the whole thing is granny's fault <laughs> <laughs> i guess when it's so ingrained nobody can really make fun of you for it because even if they try like what well, they you know kids they're gonna say oh you love flowers don't you and you're gonna be like yes i do absolutely yeah. I yeah, they did, and, yeah, absolutely. And they, they did try, I mean, bless them. I say bless
1: them, that sounds a bit strange, <laughs> but that they, they really tried to sort of egg me on and, oh, he's a gay lord and that's a great, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, fine, I'm going out to look, to look at flowers. I was sort of beyond, I wasn't even t- paying any attention and they couldn't get the rise out of me. So therefore... Yeah. Well, move on to somebody else who will fall for it or react <laughs> or something, and that I have to say that stood me in very good stead over the years. That sort of I don't care and yeah. just be yourself, be who you are, and and don't react to things that that might ache you on. That saved my life in later years. Mm. <laughs> yes, I'm looking forward attitude. to get that. <laughs> yeah, but no, at the end of the day, it's gone. I think friends away from school, I've met other ways. I don't know, sports, class, or play. I love playing Babington. Love mm. Babington. Fantastic racket sport. And even then, they, they do stick with me and they do, but especially recently, it's been such a passion with developing what we do, we're doing here now. Uh, and... It, it, it's just ingrained in you. So you tunnel vision out completely. I mean, you're in the greenhouse for so much of the time. And if they haven't got that shared passion or enthusiasm, even if they have for another subject, but say if it isn't plants, friends do just have to just turn up and find me because they know I'm not going to be on this phone. Mobiles and Tom are hopeless, not compatible. I'm always losing it or batteries off or batteries failed or something. But Planting it's just it. that thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It might take root. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. But, uh, but I just lo- love it. And I know people who have that, whether it might be politics or whether they have a cer- set a circle of friends, often who are into the same subject, because people not only understand how involved you are in it, but end up just giving up with you anyway. So, But it's well, wouldn't take a
0: second back of my life. Wouldn't take no. a second back. It's a real blessing to find like something you're so passionate about you know and then something that yeah you love and are able to spend your time doing there's not many people are so lucky it's a really yeah wonderful thing that you found there um and i and i love your passion it comes through straight away um <clears throat> so so your first uh, plant hunting trips, you said it's like when you were a teenager, you started to kind of go abroad. Before you tell me about that, did, I mentioned to you earlier about these kind of historic like orchid hunters and things like that, that a few hundred years ago where it was like this kind of dangerous and, and, you know, well-known well-respected and you know it just seemed very cool it seems like something out of an old you know hollywood film or something they may probably should make one about an old orchid hunter i don't know but but just tell me a little bit about if there were any names of people that you knew of you were aware of you aspired to kind of you know be like in a way um just anything on that on that front really yeah it was amazing as great as granny who really got me
1: inspired with the plant hunting idea Go- going into early teenage years she sort of started to introduce it to me because it's quite a complex subject to what people did do- did and are still are doing bringing back plants to our shores and all over the world for whether it's ornamental reasons because the flower looks pretty or the leaves etc or whether it's for, for, for more often now ethnobotanical things so cures for various cancers and cures for various other ailments uh, etc so plant hunting still continues to this day but as you rightly say it was back in the day that it was its heyday so from the 1770s onwards was a huge point in plant hunting circles and that was the or the dawn of a place called Kew Gardens in West Mm. London the most famous botanical institute on the planet was founded with the royal family at the time Then entirely on plant hunters Kew Gardens would not exist Without plant hunters, that's what it was founded on when they paid the first professional plant hunter to go abroad. A Scotsman from Aberdeen actually called Francis Masson to Mm. go to South Africa in the 1770s. He brought back something called the bird of paradise, Strelitzia, which is quite well, well known as a still to this day as a popular house plant and azantodichia or white arum lily, lovely glistening white, curved, supple flowers, gorgeous thing, still as populous today as it was 250 odd years ago. So Granny used to tell me these stories, but to answer your question fully, there was one person who really stood out, the most prolific plant hunter to date, and will ever have been, to the seven expeditions he made to southwestern China, a chap called George Forest, And it was something about him, his character, stubborn, wouldn't give up, passionate, determined, and absolutely in hell-bent on finding rare species of plant, orchids, um, whether it was a rare orchid, whether it was a rare primula, a type of primrose, a shrub, a tree, whatever it might be, for those seven trips that he made to southwest China. It got caught in a bamboo trap. It was like a man trap, bamboo going straight through a pierced bamboo right through the bottom of his foot shot at um, he was quite short, actually. So two times he was shot. They went straight through the bullets through his hat instead <laughs> of his head because he was quite a short chap running around in the undergrowth from warring factions in southwestern China. I mean, as a 13 year old, this was the Indiana Jones equivalent to me and better. I mean, yeah. this was fantastic. So there is no doubt that gave me that thing of, well, I don't see myself as a plant hunter compared to the yeah, the good old days, if you like, of the, the real, when it really took off back in the 1770s, I've brought back a few things over the years, but there was that link to proving that modern day plant hunting still continues to this day, which it does, albeit in a smaller way and that just egged me on I love plants as you can tell but that plant hunting background of you are going in the footsteps of people from 1770 to places that no human being has been to and you are now back in the day 1998 but I could be now here we are Beginning of March 2022, there are still places no humans have been to on this earth where plants are still being discovered. So, yes, that linked in it nicely. And you throw granny into that as well, that that mix. And
0: you just had the itchiest feet known to man. Yeah, I bet. I bet I mean yeah I mean I like I said I was reading a little bit about those those guys I, I came across I think Francis Masson and and the the stories they they must have had and like the experiences are just unbelievable you know doing kind of these the backpacking as if you want to say backpacking you know in like areas completely like you say un, untouched um but 200 years ago 300 years ago when it was just a different world and, like, I guess some of them, didn't they discover, like, thousands of new species and things like that? They well, did. Yeah never happen anymore would it right or, or at least i can't imagine somebody discovering that many because they've all not all of them but most a lot of them have been discovered right uh, <laughs> yeah you're absolutely right i mean everything they were virtually seeing was
1: new i mean everything they walked into i mean he went to the cape into south africa one of his main trips to see the white and lilies, i said the bird bird of paradise but he introduced just hundreds and hundreds of plants whatever he saw was sort of new i think he was trying to francis man masson on talking about the first professional plant hunter employed by Q, i.e. paid to go abroad with that specific mission of bringing back ornamental plants back to the the British shores. And what was so interesting to me is he must have had to try and say, I can't have that one because perhaps the flowers aren't as nice perhaps to grow in people's (laughs) gardens. Have that one. Everything he saw was new to him then. So, I mean, he may have heard some stories about Uh, Some of the plants in that area, but he was the first professional plant hunter to go abroad. So, in that region, the first ever plant hunter from abroad it was no one had been there and he must have just been spoilt for choice Uh, Mm. as you say uh, and 250 years ago the transport a lot of plant hunters died before they even got to their destination so many i mean that the ships they were going on it took months to get anywhere as now you get on a flight and it takes an hour and a half to get to wherever i mean we're so spot nowadays i have to say our world really is your oyster and you yeah. can really get to so many wonderful places so much easier but as i say some of them never actually survived the trip let alone getting back and let alone mm-hmm. when you're actually there a lot of the natives in particular weren't particularly pleased to see you or were very suspicious of what you know try to explain what i can imagine I, i've had that over the years explaining what you're doing You're not Mm. trying to, you're not a spy, you're not a this and that. You are just looking for plants. And it's a hard one to convince people.
0: (laughs) So plant hunters were just shocked because they didn't believe them. Yeah. And, and they came across cannibals and all sorts of things, didn't they? And there was all sorts of competition between plant hunters as well, right? Where, where some people would be instructed to like try and urinate on, on another plant hunter's plants to kill them before they got Like, it's a wild, uh, it's like the wild west, basically. There's this plant it was crazy business. Oh, yeah. the urine, the urination or the burning them.
1: Um, just disposed of them throwing them down a river so they wouldn't and they'd strip a forest if it was quite a rare orchids in particular people were getting especially the victorian era about the 1860s that kind of thing people were getting fanatical about the latest orchid that was being introduced these lovely blousy looking fantastically gaudy flowers from say central america actually in particular and if a plant hunter realized a new So many were going out there, being paid a fortune to do this, and the orchids that were being sold, the equivalent of millions of pounds to various growers and various aristocratic landowners in the UK, It it was a huge Business and if this particular orchid, there's quite a few examples of this and stories I've been hearing, was quite rare to or endemic perhaps to just a small area, so i.e., grows there and nowhere else in the world, perhaps a mountain top, a valley, a ravine, say in Costa Rica, in Guatemala. As you rightly say, the plant hunter that was there first would take the orchid, a few spares to just in case, get the locals, his guides, etc., to strip the trees and burn the lot. So you'd often make a plant completely extinct uh, before they even even named it or introduced it, just because wow. they were so competitive. They didn't want their competitor to have the edge or get it. Get on the ship. Get get the orchid. Get on the ship first and get back to the UK and try and undercut them. Yeah, it was. It was. I, There was a couple of stories of people actually being killed. I mean, plant hunters killing a plant hunter, um, especially in Central America, because the orchids there are absolutely sensational. And that's where they were being sent off by these very rich nurseries in the UK to to collect. So it's a real, and all this growing up with all these stories, you really felt like you were, yeah, doing something, embarking on something very, very special and a slight element of danger. It's
0: a hint definitely. of danger. Yeah. yeah, definitely. No, it's it's a rich history. And and for the record, yeah, you said uh, it's still a thing, like modern plant hunting, orchid hunting. Well, on the Wikipedia page, I can't remember it's either if it's orchid hunting or plant hunting, but it's got a subheading for modern orchid hunters or plant hunters, and your name is, you know, you, you're there at the start. You, you start the paragraph, Tom. So well, this is really. it. This is it, Ben. Come there on, you go. Come on. You know. <laughs> um, so So tell me, let's move on and tell me about some of your first trips abroad then and how that happened, where you went, and and just how that whole yeah experience was i think for me
1: the first trip that really stands in mind. there's a couple of local trips i did an exchange student trip just to southern france actually which, which was great to oh, lose cool. and it, it was great fun and uh, but actual plot hundred trip the first i ever did was cycling from here to lisbon so that's about 1800 miles on a push bike except for the english channel wise to add. um so i got the ferry for that but otherwise it was just from sangat through Calais and right across France, across the Pyrenees. God, they're quite high, the Pyrenees, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> on a bush bike, and down through Spain, the Basque Country, fantastic, and across down to, to Portugal, seeing lots of plants along the way. No specific plan apart from to try and complete the mission for Cancer Research UK. And, and, and beyond that, it was just seeing plants in the wild, admittedly, mostly by the roadside. I couldn't mm. start digressing into the middle of the woods and wherever it was in France. The Bordeaux region, particularly interesting. And Berix, there were some fantastic orchids there. I was going in May, June, so a brilliant time to see these plants. Just giving me the flavour, a good cause to cycle for. fantastic exercise, great adventure. And there's something about being on a bike. I mean, you are so vulnerable as opposed Mm -hmm. to being on public transport in your own car. You are vulnerable to a huge lorry going by, the wind, uh, flat tyres, uh, a stone in the road. Yet yeah, there's something about it. it. It added to the whole trip, that sense of the chance of me completing it were reasonably low. It was like 16, 17 at the time. And to do it in two weeks, three days, 4 hours and 21 minutes, I was really pleased with it. That excludes the ferry crossing. And yeah. it, it was just absolutely brilliant. That sense of adventure, you really, the vulnerability of it to a degree, the, the, the small chance of completing it. It was one way I should add, I got the flight back from Lisbon, but that was a real boost for me that led to a couple of family trips to, to South Africa, which, which was great, but they were family trips. It was really on November the 16th, 1997 at Terminal 3, London Heathrow at the age of just turned 21, that my life changed when I thought, yep, yeah, let's do a trip, a two-year trip backpacking abroad to Southeast Asia and Australia. It was that trip that consolidated my thought of, yeah, I wanted a trip that was going to be long-lasting, thought-provoking, meaningful. I had grants of about two and a half thousand pounds to study in Southeast Asia and Australia. So you weren't just, you gave me a Know Ben a vindication of what I was Mm -hmm. doing rather than backpacking around. Oh, aren't those flowers great? Oh, it's lovely to see plants in the (laughs) wild to improve your husbandry back home in my small little greenhouse. You know, that was wonderful. Oh, that's what I've got to do. I've got it in the wrong soil. Oh, it's growing on a rock, that orchid, not in the ground. Just seeing all these, seeing God's inspiration of actually these plants where they're growing in the wild. You can't teach that any other way through the internet actually being there well your husbandry goes through the roof the improvement to your husbandry of, of cultivating these plants much better back at home but it was that vindication of having grants to do this studying on the the mentawine islands off the coast of sumatra which is absolutely fantastic the island of sibirut Uh, That was for four months uh, with the Finnish Scott Foundation, not collecting orchids. That's legally now very restricted, but it was just seeing plants in the wild to improve my cultivation back home and a whole year going to every country in Southeast Asia, except for Vietnam. I couldn't get the visa um, to get to, to Vietnam, but it was often traveling with people as I went, mostly on my own, which is starting to gather now. I think you probably get the idea that people do find it a struggle to travel with me for too long and never stop talking. But it's, it was just an eye-opening, I, It's just an understatement of the century. I mean, it was the most fabulous trip. Nothing went wrong. and China, they tried their best to pick, pop, pocket me without success. And I, I just got buoyed by that. I was, there was a sense of, yeah, invincibility. It was uh, fatal almost really. But there was that sense of, I traveled for almost exactly a year and now it's off to Australia for another year. You know, what could go wrong? I I, I was very intrepid before Lee. I was very think, oh, this is going to be fantastic and it's going to be brilliant. But then those doubts start to come in. You know, I'm basically on my own. My home is my rucksack. Mm. My two feet are mostly my transport. Yes, local transport occasionally, but it really you are on your own you meet fellow backpackers but it was the most extraordinary time seeing the world's largest flower something called rafflesia arnoldii in sumatra it's a parasitic plant growing out of the ground It parasitizes a a, a climber called a tetrastigma vine and it appear un- unpeels itself like a it's like a sort of and white plain football is that sort of size and then it just inflates itself and palms out opens out into this meaty colored horrific smelling thing makes your eyes water it's so stench ridden smelling of rotting flesh to encourage all the bot flies and various other flies carrying flies that like that sort of smell which are the the pollinators and seeing plants that I'd grown up with, uh, even at Kew, they can't cultivate this plant, it's so difficult, was fabulous. Orangutans in Sumatra, the the, the Sumatran rhino was, well, that was not expected. That's almost extinct now. So it was an extraordinary experience being with the natives for weeks on end in the middle of nowhere. I, I Just total and utter escapism. It was fabulous. Yeah it sounds amazing. What was the question again? I don't did, even you know. Answer? I've
0: totally <laughs> gone off on one but no, just, it was perfect. <laughs> oh, it was the immersion of it was ah superlative. Yeah. So uh, did you stay with any um like indigenous tribes or anything when you were uh, or indigenous people when you were travelling around on your by, your by yourself? Yes I think most of it is <laughs> very you're a tourist,
1: you're not in your own country, you're a tourist Ben. So <laughs> for the short times I did one or two weeks, perhaps it wasn't exactly, nothing was a package tour really. We got on a flight and left and with an open ticket for two years later, that was pretty much the plan. But in between that, yes, you join, you sign up for a week to go and see the locals and you go on a white water bamboo raft in North Thailand. And that was all fun throughout the trip. I would do that to immerse yourself a little bit, but to me, it was being with the local population in Sibirut, the Mental Iron Islands, for that what quarter of a year to just over. I saw two Norwegians, and that was it the whole time. It you re- that was searching for orchids with this grant that I had through the Finnish Scott Foundation of about five hundred quid. Uh, it was it was superb and. It was just the most amazing, amazing, awe-inspiring experience. The orchids were almost a side issue. Why I was there, the flowers, I can't believe I'm actually saying this, but just to see how people live and appreciate their culture and immerse yourself. You can't do it for a week on a whitewater rafting and a bamboo raft or whatever in Thailand. Actually doing it for that period of time. It's only three months. I mean, obviously, a year or two, you'd be absolutely... Like a native, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but it was still so immersive and such a pleasure. They were such lovely people. And a guy called Corny, he was my he was my guide and he stuck with me the whole time. Yeah, he was paid, but I mean, I gave him some, the money for helping, but not much. And he was such a, if he was in this country, he'd be your best friend. You know, it's, it's an extraordinary chap and showed me the, the shamanism angles of it. I didn't get involved in a lot of the shame. I just was as a... a, 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 a I don't know, on the edge when they were doing all this in their umas, which are their longhouses. Um, yeah. the, sh- the shamanism, honestly, the shamans were amazing. Uh, get into a frenzy to speak to the, um, the spirits and the, and their God. And I mean, it was an extraordinary experience, the food, the culture, it was, it was fabulous. Had a, they didn't have rice there. They had this thing called a Sago or Sago palm. Which is the it's like a, it's a starch substitute basically. Tastes a cross between sort of potato rice and something else. It's quite weird tasting. And they would literally just scalp like a soft pith in the centre of these trunks. Scalp out all the inside of this sago palm, and that is their their staple their staple diet. That and um, pigs and a bit of beef, yeah, a few cows. But it was the most picturesque gorgeous scene and everything but being immersed in that culture was of the mental wine people it was fabulous
0: wow yeah that does sound amazing when when the shamans and stuff were doing doing their thing and and everything was getting spiritual did you did you feel anything like did did you kind of sense that you know what i'm trying to say like was was there anything I don't know, I I can't seem to put my words on how to ask this question, but did you sense any kind of spiritual things going on around you there or or just obviously you respected what they were doing, but did you feel anything or nothing? Yeah, absolutely. It did feel quite quite a lot. They were asking concoctions that they were drinking to to,
1: to get into that world. And obviously (laughs) I wasn't a local, I wasn't in that zone, I wasn't in that moment, but their reaction to it and the aura around it really you couldn't help somehow be involved in it you really felt like i didn't see anything i didn't witness anything coming out of the skies or the the gifts they're offering the sacrifices of the birds they were handing to their gods i didn't see like they actually you float the thing floating into the sky and but you definitely got a sense of, of something going on i was just drinking uh, tap water or pond water as it was there weren't any taps there so i was very much just i drink a bit occasionally but no just the tap water the pond water for me and just staring at these people appreciating their culture but there was something there ben oh yeah there was definitely i'm not just saying that because of, of the experience that was there and what they were seeing and doing you felt something and it made it so powerful you know, I forgot why I was there, the orchids, it really unusual for me, really taken out of that zone of the botanical zone into the uh, the, the ethnobotanical zone, the, the human zone and the link with plants spiritually and you know, medicinally. They always got a use for the plant. If an orchid was known and they knew what an orchid was, it's because it had a medicinal use, they don't go in for the ornamental wow. things. They have to survive in these places. Yeah. Plants are useful. That's how they understand it. And they couldn't understand why people would pay so much to look at a plant when it comes into flower on their windowsill and not eat it. They couldn't, they (laughs) couldn't, couldn't understand that. And, and I totally get it. I totally, why I totally understand why, but it was a fabulous, oh, the mental iron islands, superb place. It really was.
0: Yeah. And they, I'm assuming they accepted you like one of their own basically, and, and kind of looked, looked after you took, took you under their wing. Did you have any disagreements with any of them or? No, I think the disagreements tended to be with, do we have to walk again, Tom, back into the
1: rainforest and look for this orchid? I told you it's not there. You keep insisting it's there. It's usually right, actually. (laughs) They only said it wasn't there because they didn't want to do it. They said, Tom, I'm feeling lazy and he's brilliant, fantastic English. I mean, it was brilliant. And they just got bored of me in the end, I've got to say, which is a pattern in my life. (laughs) to put up with me for a
0: quarter of a year
1: is astonishing
0: behavior (laughs) before we move on i mean it sounds amazing before we move on i'd be remiss if i didn't just ask you briefly because you mentioned some amazing animals there as well like the orangutan and and the sumatran rhino um did you have any kind of encounters or experiences with animals that were particularly memorable or was it just a case of you just kind of got some amazing you know got to see them in their habitat but was there anything that you, you really remember that happened I think the biggest uh, for, for the fauna for me in Indonesia, I mean you did wherever you were in the middle of a
1: city in the middle of it was there the monkeys come to the city I mean it's an extraordinary place Indonesia with its seventeen and a half thousand islands or whatever it is I mean it's an amazing place I have to say the um, Sumatran rhino is pipped by the orangutans I mean they really look at you they and it's not going past you or looking over your shoulder. They look you in the eyes, Ben. And it was an extraordinary experience. I did it twice actually in Sumatra. And then the most famous orangutan sentry actually is in North Borneo, in the Malaysian bit, in the state of Saba. And it was, it was, it was fabulous seeing them. Yes, they weren't in cages. It, 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 they were <sighs> They were cultivated, if you like. I wouldn't say actually in captivity, that they had the whole forest themselves. There were no fences, there were no cages, there were no, but they would come to where they knew if they couldn't find a food source for themselves, where the humans are providing the food source. So it was a mixture of a tamed wild effect and they were relying, they needed the tourists to fund their exp- their, all their wonderful exploits that they were doing these fantastic yeah. reserves and the staff there so if there are no orangutans people can't see the orangutans we're not going to get the visitors coming the tourists coming so there was that balancing act that they had to achieve and they achieved it superbly but there's something orangutan just looking at you and just yeah yeah he sussed you out that they he or she has sussed you out they just have that acknowledgement and yeah, no, we can see him. He's pretty harmless. He probably likes flowers. He'd be all right. <laughs> I mean, they're they're very, very clever. Just that eye contact, and they soon get bored. Right, I'm off to eat something now, or or pick nits out of my cousin's head, or <laughs> something, you know. Yeah. And it was, and that orange hair, sometimes, especially in the older generation, with the much darker, flattened face, that starts to appear, and almost morphologically starts to spread as they get a bit older, and that wise old orangutans it was it was a yeah spiritual experience almost
0: fabulous yeah wow that's amazing i mean yeah a few weeks ago i spoke to a primatologist and yeah he told me some of his like encounters in the wild with uh, different primates like chimpanzees and and others um but yeah it was uh, it was amazing um okay so I could, I could talk about that for ages. Uh, there's probably loads of we didn't touch on in terms of you living with the, the, you know, the indigenous people and that kind of thing, but, but let's move on. I'm conscious of the time. Let's move on to how you kind of, how you went from there to starting to think about going out to South America and, and, you know, Colombia, Panama, the, the Darien Gap ultimately. Um, so yeah, how did that all come about? How did that get onto your radar and, and how did you make it happen? Oh, she was down my spine you've been talking
1: about <laughs> the next chapter i still can't yeah. believe it It was me or, or my friend I'd, but before central america a year in australia i'll summarize this there's a lot to get through but basically yeah. Aust- australia was just fabulous i love eucalyptus tree you've got the national collection here one of only three in the uk and you brought about,
0: you, oh you were the first one to make one flower weren't you one of these amazing types of eucalyptus i saw a picture of it That's it. That Um, was from Western Australia, the Silver Princess, it was called. Yeah. After it flowered, it died
1: to kill the story off. I don't know, after all that. But yes, I was the first to flower and then kill it straight away. But yeah, yeah, I introduced so many different eucalyptus trees. Most prolific plant hunting expedition for me was Australia. In particular, uh, Australia's only island state, Tasmania. I had four months there, uh, mostly backpacking, hitchhiking, walking most of the UNESCO World Heritage site that is Tasmania and brought back over 140 different types of plant. In seed form, I was sending back in these old camera film cases. You can't get those anymore, can you? Or I suppose contact lens case equivalent, those camera film cases, sending them all back to mum. Because I was still a long way away to go on my trip in Australia, not knowing what was going to happen next. I had no clue really what I was going to do, to, to, to do next. But Tasmania was fabulous. I bought this two man, twenty eight dollars. It cost me Aussie dollars. So I don't know, ten pounds or something this two man tent that was to be used a lot in the coming Mm. months, but it was a fabulous, fabulous trip and my most prolific plant hunting trip with the permits. I had permits to collect quite restricted now. So lots of permits and all these seeds were being sent back home to mum, these camera film cases full of seed to be stored in the fridge. So if they kept at about four or five degrees or less if preferable, they will last 60, 70 years the viability of this seed. Like dust, Ben. Eucalyptus seed is like dust so and whereas at room temperature it lasts two or three years at most and that's it so mum poor mum or poor dad when i eventually got back home the fridge was full of these seed cases and dad dad was like i can't get any food in there because you've got all these ridiculous seeds he didn't understand that at all <laughs> so it was, it was an was amazing experience i'm jumping the gun a bit but it was a fantastic experience and then it was just an innocent flight back via sydney international airport Tokyo for a two or three days stopover and Narita. I didn't see any of Japan at all, just the airports around really. And then I just thought a little stopover, a little innocent stopover in San Francisco. I've never been to Western United States and The key thing for me was seeing two giants of the plant world. Well, they are the largest single living organism in the world, the sequoia dendron giganteum, which is the giant redwood. And that's Mm. in Yosemite National Park in California. And the tallest tree in the world, its cousin, a few hundred miles away on the Pacific Northwest coast, the coastal redwood. And that is sequoia sempervirens. And I saw the tallest tree in the world and I saw... The largest tree and it isn't a botanical experience Ben. it is not a plant experience in the way to me it is an out-of-body spiritual experience seeing these you feel so small and you feel so humbled and insignificant when you stand the next to these things that weigh hundreds of tons and tower 113 meters into the sky it's it's an extraordinary experience. And I never got my connecting flight back home. Uh, it, it, it was I just was so absorbed by the states and I traveled further south. And I my parents are thinking when's he coming home? This was now October, <laughs> October 1999. So nearly two whole years of traveling. And without going home, I only phoned my parents twice in two years (laughs) really bad I love her parents they're fantastic I love granny my sister but it was my escapism and they did my parents totally understand but some parents might find that quite hard to deal with but it was just the way it was and I traveled further south to Never forget it, to Arizona, to the Botanic Gardens there, which were fabulous, in Tucson. And then to see those John Wayne-style saguaro cacti, or saguaro is actually how you say it, these amazing branch cacti. They're so stereotypical, that part of the world. Seeing forests of them was just sensational. And then to cross the border, and never forget it, into Mexico to go to the Copper Canyon. 10 times the size of the Grand Canyon, but not quite as spectacular to look at. So it's not often talked about. And that's oh. where I met this chap, November 1999, called Paul Winder, who completely mm. and utterly changed my life on November 1999. He was a backpacker like me, more into his mountains than plants. But we bonded instantly, faithfully, you might say. <laughs> and he introduced me. He... Yeah, maybe familiar with i'd heard about this region called el darien the darien gap yeah on the panamanian colombian border it straddles the border the only break in the pan-american highway for 17 and a half thousand miles from alaska pretty much to the bottom of tier del fuego chile argentina a continuous dip of asphalt except for this gap what is it about 100 plus kilometers it's just tropical rainforest and i i I looked it up on the internet and all i saw was orchids and i just thought what would it be like to name a new species of orchid after my granny it's just it just made sense paul seems amazing he's my lucky charm he's well traveled he told me he'd hitchhike across the sahara on his own he's going to be brilliant what could go wrong And we agreed to meet up with each other in Central America proper. So Panama City, beginning of March of the year 2000 to start this, what was only a two and a half week walk, according Mm. to our 1990, 1995 edition of the Lonely Planet Guidebook. It's not a two and a half week walk. (laughs)
0: and it's not a walk in the park either. <laughs> not exactly. <It's> not. No. <laughs> no. I mean, so I first heard about the Darien Gap. I think I told you this through Carl Bushby, who is somebody I interviewed a few or spoke to a few weeks ago who has been walking around the world since 1998. He walked through the Darien Gap and had some pretty hair-raising moments himself but avoided any any actual big issue I suppose or any he made it out anyway as planned. Um but yeah, he he briefly mentioned you in passing. He mentioned these two mad. He got it a little bit wrong. He mentioned these two mad botanists. Obviously, one botanist and and one. Not a botanist, but two probably two mad people in a way, right? It's not a, it's not a negative but... <laughs> and uh, he's totally and... <laughs> accurate. He's being polite, actually. <laughs> and and anyway, yeah. So he told me about how you went in and you got you got kidnapped, taken taken captive, and all this kind of thing. And and I was immediately in that conversation while I was recording. I was like, oh, I have to I have to try and find one of these or both of these people at some point and and yeah so i've got you i just had to pay carl some some homage there and i have got a few questions from carl actually that i'll kind of i'll get to at some point um he's given me a few questions um but yeah so carry carry on where you were then um absolutely you you just had your lonely planet guide you, you just read your guide had you been speaking to people as well did you kind of did you plan it much in advance were you getting advice from other people um, that's one of Carl's questions, actually, funnily enough. But <laughs> so. Yes, we, we were, Ben. The ignorance, um,
1: me and Paul would say, the, the the idiots that we were looking back and to this day for even attempting it. But what was I, 22, 23, Paul, a couple of years older. You, you are invincible. And, and the trips me and Paul had had up until that time, nothing had gone wrong. We both shared that with great enthusiasm. However, Paul is definitely slightly more, which isn't too hard, actually, more sensible than me. In fact, he's way more. Um, you might say that could be questionable for what happened next, but he is quite a sensible, rational person. I'm just, plugged. let's go and see some plants. And we did question people along the way, and individually we travelled independently of each other in Central America. Just to be clear, Ben, I don't know this guy from school or university. Yeah. We have just met. There's something when you're backpacking, you get on with somebody, you bond and you go off on a trip and you digress and you go off on another expedition somewhere somebody you don't know. It's so frequent. It happens when you're backpacking. Some people don't can't understand why you've just met him. So how, but you do when you're traveling and you know, if you've been to places, it's, it's like a sort of, a, it's a family. It's a funny, you just trust people a lot more perhaps than perhaps you normally would or whoever it is you meet. And that was that instant bond. And we just, felt that invincible it was it was so ridiculous looking back but yes we did question ask a few people we got to foreign office statements which were quite clear don't do it (laughs) it's dangerous the panamanian army are down there fantastic the orchids are going to be great i mean and the condition me and paul set ourselves if we get injured if we break a leg or fall somewhere we turn back you know obviously if we get accosted by a Panamanian army group and and so on. And, you know, they're really threatening and say, look, you've got to go back. Of course we would but they just egged each other on. So beginning of March of the year 2000, me and Paul Winder caught from Panama City, the capital of Panama in Central America. We caught a six hour bum bruising pothole filled bus ride down the (laughs) remainder of the Pan-American highway as it literally fizzles out into quite suddenly nothing. Just a wall of basically green. Off we got. The bus was packed when we left Panama City. There was just me and Paul and the bus driver shaking his head as we got out. And we thought, why is he shaking his head? <laughs> oh well, let's get on with it. We put <laughs> these three three foot-long machetes which was so cheap and useless. They were as blunt as anything. They bounced off blades of grass, but we looked serious. We had our rucksacks. We had our mosquito net. That tent was to save our lives. I still had from Tasmania. All part of the same trip. So into year three oh, yeah. now. That's into unbelievable, year... by the way. I didn't realise that. three was part yeah. of the
0: same trip. That's crazy. Um... Still just
1: phoned <laughs> mum twice in, in nearly three years. It was getting ridiculous. <laughs> and we just got our 1995 edition of the Learning Planet Guidebook. We got the route. It had a map, map of the area where, To go, mentions the danger, but not too much. Paula bought the 2000 edition of the Lonely Panic Guidebook and it had nothing in it no maps, no refreshment stops, no lovely local native information. It was just a succinct phrase, quite powerful, two blank center pages, except for top left, a little phrase don't even think about it. And that made yeah. us question it. So we went into the Panamanian, Panamanian Army office. Always a clue, Ben. If you've got barracks and helicopters and the army down there, perhaps you shouldn't go there. But no, <laughs> me and Paul walked straight into the commander's office. We were actually requested to go in for a chat. Now, what are you two doing? I mentioned my love for orchids and my amazing granny. Want to see some new species of orchids. They just looked blankly at me. And, and Paul then mem- <laughs> mentioned as a map behind the commandant, he was very sort of yeah poker face i mean he was quite serious and paul just ah that's the route that we can take so he was getting inspiration for the map behind the commandante's head of where to go and the commandante turned to us which he should i wouldn't be talking to you now if he'd said something else he just turned to us and said well you can if you want but we don't recommend it green light totally (laughs) agree if you'll go that you will die we'll never see you get right we're going back no it was that you can do it but and before we'd even finished, we'd left. And he shouldn't uh, it's no excuse. But an army's there, that's indication of how unsafe the region is. We could barely sleep that the night that followed, we were so excited, jumped up in the morning, got our rucksacks, donned all our equipment, and walked across. I never forget this rope bridge with thin, slatted softwood planks over this absolute torrent of a tropical river. And you had civilization 10 feet behind you as you stepped onto this bridge, wilderness uncharted exploration uncharted plant hunting territory it was the most spine chilling exciting petrifying pee your pants most exciting time of my life all in one breath in a split second was there fear dread The most exciting time of my life, that moment of going into the rainforest and following our 1995 edition of the Lonely Bannock Guidebook. The little, not (laughs) to scale, of course, and it was brilliant. We, 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 We virtually got to the Colombian border within about three or four days. Our confidence was through the roof. It's the most safest place in the world. We met no trouble, didn't meet snakes, didn't meet angry locals. They were quite surprised to see us. We got two guides. Who were just standing in the middle of the pathway i think they knew we were coming they were waiting for us i said this is the the border um, money exchange sorry this guy and his trainers and this very disheveled sort of look said yeah and their name was carlos i can change money into colombian pesos for you right we're in the middle of absolute there's nobody here so he said okay that's fine and i'll be your guide we were qu- i have to say they're both colombian they said and we were quite okay um and pause. like, Tom, we don't know these people, but let's just let some, um, yeah, let's progress on our own. So we basically quickly rushed. We knew the map we we're following was right. The paths were getting quite bigger, uh, quite much wider. And we went to the, the, the town of Paita, right on the border with Colombia and would we'll lose these guys. They'll lose interest. But no, they followed us. And we agreed $70 each, I think it was, for them to take us across the border. And it was the right decision. In hindsight, I think it's difficult to say, but at the time it was it was the right decision. We would have got totally and utterly lost. They knew exactly uh, the route. And what was it? March the 14th and March the 15th, trekking towards the Colombian border into the mountains. Not many orchids, though, Ben. I was quite disappointed. Tough conditions, though. But we had all the equipment that they had some food that they were getting for us too and the night of March the 15th I'll never forget we had these local pava birds like a turkey basically a a Central American equivalent of a lovely uh, slightly thin actually turkey and we ate that they shot it and we ate the the turkey had a lovely meal a nice breakfast the next morning and it was just yeah it shivers down my spine thinking about it there was something about March the 16th we were too far ahead of schedule we were doing too well it, it was the sight, the birds weren't chattering in the trees. It's hard to explain. Me and Paul were just so confident. And I thought, well, no orchid's worthy of Granny's name, but we're there. And the guides turned to us and said, Tom, Paul, we're 45 minutes from the Colombian border, mate. You know, we what? We're there. And Don our rucksacks. They were Carlos went first. I'll never forget it. Um, Francisco went second. Great chap. Lovely chap. He was the hunter with the birds and i was in third place unusually actually in third place paul was always behind them but he got distracted by a mountain range he wanted to come back and climb <laughs> another time he's never going back to the darien gap nor yeah. am i and we went into this clearing it was weird as if someone had got a flymo lawnmower and cut the tropical grass it was actually the wild boar that with their gnashes as a fine even cut throughout Orchids dripping from the trees, air plants, palm trees, pine trees. It was Kew uh, gardens, eat your heart out, queue with no glass in the tropical <sighs> house. It was incredible. And we, it happened in slow motion. It was so weird. There's these two figures, then three, four, five, six girls really 15 year olds i would say three girls and three boys maybe the boys were 15 16 had a push just ran at us and we stared at these people with big m16s and ak-47 guns bandanas all the commander you know camouflage gear on our two guides just collapsed to the floor with their hands on their heads uh, me and paul just looked it was almost as if it just wasn't happening and then a uh, thing called a kneecap, your knee, when it freezes and thaws so quickly what it sees in front of you, you uncontrollably fall to the forest floor. Paul had fallen before I had. He went sheet. I mean, he just went white. White and, a, you know, snow. He was frozen with fear. And suddenly you've got a big gun stuck to your head, hands behind your backs. Uh, I mean, just split seconds. And they were absolutely, these guys were petrified to see us. They, uh, we, all, we just walked. Someone said, Was it an ambush? Did the guide set you up? Was there talk of that over the, just a look of shock, of worry that we, perhaps they thought we had guns. These, what were these two white faces doing here of our to be captors for uh, the rest of the year? Um, meant to me that we just, did. you stumbled across this patrol, it was just bang. If I'd gone to the toilet five minutes earlier, if Anything could have happened, and we would have avoided them. I wouldn't be talking to you now. It was mm. just, and bang, and they took our rucksacks off forcibly. Was sort of me trying to help them out a little front, uh, front rucksack and a big rucksack on the back, all the same. Then they tied us up. The only time they ever tied us up was what looked like garden string behind our backs. Still, this cool M sixteen, AK forty seven, Kalashnikovs, whatever, all the other things they had stuck to our and and the guides' heads the guides then were dragged off into the woods i don't think they were executed um not sure if they were murdered still not quite sure they've never been seen since and and me and paul dragged off into the woods for the next 10 months in captivity so kidnapped
0: march the 16th for the rest of the year in captivity wow i mean you know where do we even begin to like unpack that i mean so so March 16th. So what date did you say it was when you started into the, when you got off the bus, let's say? Um, yeah, March 6th, 7th. 6th, 7th? That's right. So, 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 so about nine, 10 days of walking. And, and it's been mostly blissful, mostly not so productive in terms of flowers, but a lovely, enjoyable, tiring, I'm guessing, and sweaty and everything like that as well. But, but an enjoyable experience. Comfortable, Ben i mean there weren't the challenges particularly we never got lost
1: you know it was an extraordinary and of course that just buoyed us and we always said if the army were behind us now if we had an injury paul said if i break a leg we go back but we didn't sprain a muscle that was to change
0: (laughs) but but (laughs) until
1: that point you know and we were there we were there
0: we were almost 45 minutes and i would have been back home and so you went then from having that mentality of, you know, just looking around and, and everything's good and you're enjoying where you are and you're just walking, thinking about plants. um And then within the space of five minutes later, yeah, you've got this, like you say, cold metal pressed to your head, massive gun, bunch of other guns around. Probably they're talking in a language that you don't understand much of, I assume. Um, yeah, that's and right. I, I, I'm guessing you're picking up maybe one word here and there or something like that um what was going through your mind at that point you know were you managing to keep it together because i that's kind of one of those moments where that would separate humans right some people everybody react different some people would probably try and fight and get shot some people would be crying and screaming some people would be just yeah inconsolable wailing some people would probably try and talk their way out of it some people would go deathly quiet i imagine everybody would deal with it differently but what was going through your mind, and like, how did you approach that situation other than just to do what you were told? I mean, literally, you could feel the urine going down your leg. It
1: was amazing. You did that that that, that situation. Um, it wasn't a slow burn. It was, I mean, you, you bang. It happened so mm. quickly. Wow. But for the most paradoxical place, you're saying that you could be to you're screwed, and it was fascinating because, as you say, do you cry? Do but b- but no, it was very much this um, self-preservation. You want to live mm. every single hour of your life more than you think. And I, we don't even con- subconsciously perhaps even or consciously do it. It just me and Paul, and very similar in that regard. Thanks. God, as you say, try and fight them; you're dead. You run away. I'll oh, just shoot them. Life there is not the same as it is in um, in Europe.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know,
1: it, re- it really is a different mentality. So it, it was it, it was fascinating. How I was actually amazed at myself and thinking and talking to with you about it now. You really realise actually how this self preservation comes in the calmness inside. You are absolutely all over the place, mm-hmm. but this sort of vault fast is it whatever you say. And on the outside, you just yeah, let's see. How can I survive? How am I not going to get executed this afternoon? Mm. What am I going to do to, and This is obviously one of those things, and all that follow for the next year, nearly 10 months in captivity, just dealing with each second as it comes. Right, they want to, they want to kill us now, whatever they did in the, we'll talk about it in a minute, but it, it was real i've never been as scared as that in my life and through the whole of captivity nothing could match that it was prolonged mm. mental pain in the captivity yeah. that followed but, but but that one moment of back and you can never match that whatever happens in life that won't be matched that is an exceptional yeah. sense of flaming Eck <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know and paul were very calm and paul we were white i mean paul just turned like snow i mean he was white from being pink in the face and look at this Tom, and look at that to bang on our knees so it was quite an adjustment and he had to do it quickly and i think we did a reasonably good job overall otherwise i wouldn't be talking to you would be dead yeah so, successful job of that i would say um <laughs> but yeah to yeah. answer the question wow that is awesome that is a petrifying experience and our guides we turn around and the guides were gone
0: so we still don't really know what happened yeah that's rough how is it to talk about? Obviously, you've been doing it now for twenty years. You've been talking about it, and and you must have told your story countless times. But uh, so I'm supposing it's got a bit easier over that time. But is it still mm-hmm. hard? Obviously, I'm going to force you to talk about it anyway, even if it's hard. But is it still is it still hard to talk about it? Is it does it still make you feel emotional? And and how do you feel now? Bring it's, like resurfacing it. Sort of. It's funny, isn't it? very cathartic i find it good sort of mentally to talk
1: about it i have no paul isn't the same he doesn't do talks i get quite a talk few talks to the local wi the w- w- women's institute here and 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 garden societies or whatever it is and talks around that garden we're doing here now so and it is sort of quite therapeutic oh i go as deep as you like i don't sort of mind i think it's it makes me realize how lucky i am how stupid we were mm. but how lucky yeah. i am to have got out of that situation and to live each day. I mean, that expression is, yeah, to live each second of each day. We're yeah. so lucky here in this country. A lot of us don't realise actually, wow, you know, we are very lucky to live in the UK. So it's, yeah, I enjoy it. And it's very cathartic and very, as I say, very therapeutic. I think that's yeah. perhaps a way of dealing with it. Perhaps it's how I sort of deal with it in life. I tend, tend to be a bit like that with things. This is quite extreme. This, uh, you know, my time as a hostage, but it tends to be a similar sort of, yeah, vein of thought. That's
0: very much sharing it, and
1: yeah, no, that makes it.
0: sense. Definitely. Yeah. um So tell me then. Obviously, we're not going to be able to talk through every hour of every day in detail that you were there because we'd be here for nine, ten months. But tell me th- those kind of. Even the first few minutes, like, so you, you've gone from on your knees and y- your brain is kind of overcoming the, the panic and the shock and you're processing, uh, you know, you're processing, you're trying to deal with it, trying to understand, trying to figure out. But what happened then? So how long were you on your knees? Do, if you remember, obviously you didn't have a big clock with a, a timing exactly, but how long did it feel like? How Did they then pick you up, drag you off? How long were you walking with them? What were kind of the next steps? And yeah.
1: Yeah, and then a similar pattern then followed. So the first bit's good, good, good to mention, to say the least. So it felt like an age, but we were on our knees. I mean, my, I didn't even get pins and needles. I was on my knees for a split of seconds, I think, pretty much. A minute, maybe at the most in total. But it felt like days. Mm. Every second was literally like an hour. It, it was everything just slow. Yet it was so fast around us. Guns, yeah. right, this, your life is going to be terminated pretty dramatically here, Thomas. But yeah, everything was just sort of, it was weird. So the two universes, the reality, and in your head it was, mm, let me get a tape recorder that's knackered at the end of its life. Mm. It was really weird stuff. But it wasn't long. It was a few, well, 10, 20 seconds probably, I suspect, before they actually grabbed us to our feet. And forcibly with a gun behind your back didn't physically drag us, but push with a gun to oh, about 30, 40 feet away to this clearing where we'd come from by this, the river and in just searching all our stuff, passports. Um, there was hardly any money. We hadn't had, any, had a few travellers checks, bank cards. They were looking, they couldn't understand where the guns and the knives. So we explained and you know, I'm looking for orchids and Paul's and mountaineer. We tried already in my faltering Spanish. God, I don't know what I came out with, but they seemed to get the idea that we really weren't CIA drug runners. That immediately was coming up. And me and Paul like, we're not being shot for something that we're not. Me and Paul yeah. hardly talked, I should be clear. This is almost a subliminal uh, conversation that me and Paul were having That actually talking. It was extraordinary how that guy I didn't know um, and vice versa too was was. We were to save each other's lives countless times over the next 10 months. We just worked on each other so well without even meaning to. He was high, I was low, I was high, he was low. He he neutralised everything almost between us we did to a level playing field of how we're going to deal with things. I would be dead on my own and he'd be dead too, he said. There's no way. But between us we just, my sort of eccentric behaviour and excitement for life and Paul very much more calmer and it met in the middle. It was an amazing relationship. So to answer your question, then we sat underneath this guava tree, a lovely fruit from the tropics, which are becoming a bit more commonplace in, in European supermarkets. A lovely fruit with a pink, fleshy, salmon pinky center, juice, sugary fruit, juicy, sugary fruit. And there was a, rot- a rotting one on the floor. So they'd untied us at this stage, I should say. So we were tie- tied up for a very short time. And I picked up this fruit and... I could see the maggot coming at the top and I could see there was a millipede in it. And Paul was looking at me going, okay, what are you doing? I just basically shoved it in my mouth and started eating it. It was disgusting and didn't taste. like well. I knew it was going to be disgusting. I wasn't trying to, Oh, there's a nice fruit. It was, it was obviously my, not me thinking about it. I just did it. And thinking back, why did I do it? I, I can only ascertain to get a reaction out of them to see what they were like. It was my only sort of way doing it. And then I sort of, well, turned around to them and said, oh, it's rotten, you know, um, I as a stick, can I throw a stick to get it into the tree? And they turned their backs and I was already throwing this stick in to get some nice right ones hanging in the tree. And they looked at me and they all started, there's this funny smile coming across some of their faces. And that meant a lot, trying to humanize them, trying to mm. start to get across who I was and Paul, and it was a tactic we employed throughout, without fail, whatever, however much under pressure we were on, that's a tactic. Not with guava fruit, but in a whole range of other ways. Uh, nicknames for them, doing silly things. You know, we tried to get across them who we were and, uh, and humanise them as much as possible. So in my head, they wouldn't blow our heads off. And I, I got a nice fruit off the tree and I ate a ripe fruit. And they could look at me and they could see, he knows what a guava is okay and i explained the latin name of the guava but didn't understand what i was talking about paul was like what are you doing sort of look <laughs> but it, it was it was a it was just to extend my life for another hour that's how yeah. with, but i didn't think to, i just was doing it It was no mind i'm going to pick up that fruit now oh it's got a mag no it happened it was extraordinary your, your body mind are just linking up and they're going together and going with it this is how you're going to extend your life for the rest of the day it was like that it was bizarre then they went to our first camp which was to be for about six seven days and they just insisted that we were cia and drug runners this went on for for months but basically the pattern was this very nomadic lifestyle that we lived there we went from from camp to camp um for the next 10 months Uh, there were about 700 different faces that we saw 700 a third of those were girls young ladies the rest boys, your young men, average age, 16, 17, armed to the teeth. Me and Paul couldn't work out. We are in the middle and we were, some of the places we went to were even more in the middle of nowhere that were to follow in the months to come. And they're just so well armed, quite a good source of food, packeted rice, chicken flavourings, lots of cows in the area. So the locals must be assisting them in all of this without any choice i I do suspect and it it was bizarre and obviously i'm not recommending the experience but after being kidnapped we saw some fantastic orchids orchids i would never have seen without being kidnapped right up into the mountains we went and i built gardens with them i say with them they soon got bored we went on these armed orchid patrols they let me go on i mean we got away with quite a bit never tied up again um, so we were quite free is not the word to use, but you could feel this invisible leash wrapple around your neck when you got more mm. than 30 feet from the Commandant's hut, you know. But it was extraordinary. Makeshift camps, four V-sticks with poles to link up, four poles to link up a square and then slatted banana and palm leaves to make your mattress. Often then sat this two-man tent, the very small two-man tent I travelled into Tasmania with was to be our home for The rest of the year, but again, the orchid hunting—I was more orchid hunting in that during captivity than any time of my life. It was the most fantastic but terrifying place. Orchids are great. You're going to die every second. You had that for ten months. Mock executions and started to appear aggression, and we just handled it as if we would—we were kidnapped every day of our lives. I love the orchids here. I love the orchids in here. I love the orchids. This is my dream place to live. And they didn't know what to obviously I was controlling a lot of what I was saying. I was faking a lot, a lot of it. But just they just, you know, they wanted to hear, oh your granny, oh, you know, I'm sorry you miss, I miss my granny senior. Oh good, he misses his stupid granny. That plays into their hands because they can relate to a granny or a, a friend or dad or mum or sister. But to say, I love the orchids, to relate to where you were now, they didn't want to be there. We knew that. They, they didn't want to even kidnap us, I think a lot of them were so bored with it and fed up with it. But I just played on that. And it was only partly true because we wanted to get, obviously, the hell out of there alive. Yeah. But it was yeah. a tactic. And building gardens I, I, it
0: was also escapism at the same time. Yeah it's just yeah it's unbelievable there's there's so many directions I could go in now so many different questions I could ask you and and there's so many I want to ask you um I guess firstly just to kind of get that out of the way did they say explicitly like you can't go or was it just a completely like you just you just felt that and you just kind of understood that and you just didn't want to risk walking away because you felt like you'd get shot in the back or did you ever ask them directly like can we can we just go um like was that ever kind of vocalized um yeah it's so funny it's a great point i don't think i've ever been asked that it's that's an
1: obvious point knows the i mean never vocalized for sure it was an understanding (laughs) that didn't need to be stated (laughs) using your vocal cords you leave us you you'll be executed there was no question of that and where the hell do we go ben where the hell do we go no compass will save you here you either know the local native paths or you are stuff Mm. you will die in the jungle they knew that they knew that we didn't know the area well we're tourists so there was no there was no actual sort of vocalization of that It was interesting yeah i haven't thought of it like that yeah actually um it's wonderful but you know it's been a couple of weeks i must get home sort of thing we did occasionally ask i think at the beginning we then just gave up in the end because it then turned to $5 million each they wanted before they'd executed. So they switched yeah. their line of thinking down to money quite quickly. But it yeah. was very much this sort of mindset of just, just digging in and especially as the weeks went, went on. I think initially there was the, you know, how much longer for, there was a couple of things we started to, no, tomorrow, tomorrow you'll be free. There was a couple of lighthearted banter with that. But me and Paul thought, well, there's no point in asking anymore. We're only going to get our hopes up to something that they're starting yeah. to lie now. They don't know yeah. what's going on probably as well. So it was soon knocked on the head, all of that idea of trying to ask them to leave. or, But it certainly was, a great mental test. And that you do feel if you can survive that, you can survive anything. And I think it was wow. They yeah. then tried to split after six weeks, they tried to split us up, Ben. So one person apparently this has been done quite a lot actually throughout the world in host situations. If there's mm-hmm. two or more of you, send one person home to get the money and come back or to get something to bring back in exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can all go home. But me and Paul knew the person left behind, me or Paul. Would be dead because they're not going to go and get 10 million dollars they were fantasizing about this 10 million dollars you know you, you the person left behind is dead and we stuck to it they were determined to split us up they tried every tactic in the book to split us up paul says you're a wanker um yeah he hates you and we've uh paul wouldn't have said that in my head oh senor, yes senor, yes senor. And then vice versa, they take us to one side for hours on end and try and get us to deceive, think perhaps that Paul was not a nice person. But I didn't know Paul that well, but I knew him well enough to know he wouldn't say that or do that. Never did it ever cross my mind that they were telling the truth. But quite a good tactic. They persisted with that. And me and Paul didn't really say stop doing it. We sort of went along with it to see what else do you do, Ben? You know, and it (laughs) was tough. That was mentally Paul was beginning to doubt things and saying, you know, not about what I had said, they knew they're making all that up, but just doubting, you know, where's this going to end? Are they forcibly mm-hmm. going to take one of us out? Yeah. Into the back to where we've come from to get this money that doesn't exist because whoever's left behind is stuffed and that's that. Yeah.
0: So we just dug in and they eventually gave up on that tactic. Wow. I mean, you mentioned that the aggression and stuff started to to mount up a little bit and there were, you said they were kind of mock executions or they were kind of threatening executions. But I mean, obviously, even without that, you, your mind is going to start to play tricks and at certain point you're going to start to think, well, not even tricks, your mind is just going to start to kind of think about things and you're going to start to think I'm, i'm probably not going to make it out of here like firstly did you have those thoughts and how long into it did you start to think there's a solid chance we're going to die here in the daring gap but then second second kind of part of that question would be just to tell me tell me a bit about yeah their aggression and how that escalated and what kind of things in regards to threats on your life um, yeah, that you had to deal with because that's obviously like one of the hardest things there is, right? That's yeah, I'm sure, sure. And, sus-
1: and, and, and sustain too, and the fact they're so young, the unpredictability of everything was amazing. Mm. I'll get to the points in a sec, but just, just, just to say that me and Paul, we tried to guess for what every minute virtue of 10 months in captivity, nearly that we were there, of what they were gonna do next. I don't know, were they gonna go and have a bath? Were they gonna go off and get a cow? Were they gonna come in and beat us up? We never guessed right once. (sighs) because they weren't even in control of anything either. And that petrified us. We didn't know what. They were They were so unpredictable. They didn't mean right. to be. That it was just the nature of the situation. And, of course, their age, too, just teenagers. But, yeah, Ben, to get on the questions, yeah, six months in, half a year in, this $10 million was not appearing, and they began to doubt it and they took it out on us and said well it's not coming because they've lied to us or they made all this stuff up so no physical really hard beatings one guy took a huge swing at me we called him the knight massive black bloke as wide as he was tall birch he absolutely built and gave me a punch to the arm well i thought my arm was going to fall off the bruise he left would do, they were just frustrated. They just wanted this to end. They'd had enough of holding hostage these two white people. And it really was getting nasty with the change in, in command. So every sort of two or three months, you'd get a new commandante, the boss. All chaps? Yeah, all chaps. Except towards the end, there was a chap, we called him Go- Goofy. This amazing sort of goofy sort of cartoon jawline. Really nasty chap with his other half. Um, who was called quite politely, actually, the bitch. Uh, She was so nasty. Bits of fingers weren't there. There was a couple of the earlobes were missing. And there was, you know, these two have killed people in our heads. Uh, And and we thought, well, they're the commandante towards the end. They're going to have him as the situation deteriorates. He'll be the one that kills us. It was our sort of, so to answer your second part, yeah, we did start to seriously question. I wrote my will home. I say home. So I wrote my will for, to give to Paul in case he was released and vice versa. It was all getting, I didn't cry that much. Actually, amazingly during the whole experience, a couple of tears, but full on blubbering. But I did writing that will, dear mum and dad, you know, my sister can have my stamp collection. <laughs> I'm sorry for doing all of this and putting you through it. I mean, it was heavy, hardcore stuff, Ben. She mm. and they, they it just, you could, atmosphere I mean you could cut it with a knife it was so tense they were just pissed off they were so fed up with it all and they just blamed us particularly me perhaps because speaking the Spanish they seemed to think that I was more intelligent because I could speak a bit of Spanish I understood the situation a lot more perhaps they sort of had this thing of Why me? Perhaps I was the bit the go-between with Paul because he deliberately thought, I'm not learning any Spanish. These guys are all idiots, and and cut himself off from it. Uh, Probably deliberately, actually. I understand that. He didn't want to hear what they were saying at night about what they were going to do to us and serious stuff, which, thankfully, they they never did. But they really, we thought, we were going to be terminated at the end. Until the eve of us eventually being released was when we nearly legged it. We, we, we were just oh, really? oh Ben minutes wow. away from legging it. We had a, a bit of a broken mirror that we found on the floor, quite a sharp edge to it. We cut the back, back of the tent and we were ready to climb out the back of the tent if this storm came over, which the rain, so heavy, torrential mm. rain, would cover the noise of us running and together with the lightning. And the storm went all the way around the camp where we were. And avoided us so we didn't leg it but and we thought that's it we're gonna die here so it was dead December the 9th hard we just it was building it was building it was building something was building but uh someone changed their minds probably a commandante mm. we never met someone made a decision somewhere it was if they were to make the decision the commandant at the time we would have been shot no question he was ready just please Please, you know, you could could hear him. He loved the thought of, and torturing beforehand and then killing the hostage was his speciality, it seemed to me and Paul. The bitch would just sort of salivate the thought of it. I mean, these two were at a different level. They were Mm. hardcore. And someone told them that, that I saw it with me and Paul, this guy walked off on December the 10th in the morning, walked up into the hills and came back down. He left a really jubilant person. He thought, yeah, we're going to kill them. And he came back all annoyed. He told the commandante goofy something and he got so frustrated around this campfire he had, he kicked the fire and the embers all over the place in, in his welly boots. We all wore welly boots because it was so wet and they were quite practical. They didn't degrade as quickly as normal shoes. And he got all the embers stuck to his boot. He was on fire, te- technically on fire. So he was, it got worse. The bits were slagging us off, throwing bits of stones. And me and Paul looked at each other and went, this is fantastic. Because we knew if they were annoyed, we had a chance of not being killed. It's when, it's when they sort of smiled a little bit and smirked, oh, dear. But no, they yeah. were so infuriated and just came up to me and Paul and said, well, you can, in lots of fiery language, you might imagine, from them, basically, you can go, here's all your stuff. If you come back, we'll blow your heads off. Sorry, senior, you can go home, see your effing this and effing mum and granny and all this sort of stuff. And he walked off. Up came this guy to us with all our stuff. So we had our passports given back, our cameras, health passport, driver's licence, uh, Lloyd's TSB card from the high street in Seven Oaks was given <laughs> back to us. And Paul's $3,500 worth of travellers checks were given back to him. I mean, at this stage, you were like, I, I was like, no, this is a trick. And Paul, for the first time, he was generally the more negative person with right <laughs> he was usually yeah. always right it was tom the p- positive person i was usually wrong about what they were going to do next but he turned to me and went, tom they would have shot us now mate what's the point of giving all our stuff back and i was like right and this guy came up to us who had been with us from day one pretty gormless bloke really about 18 years we called him purty he had these amazing pert nipples And he he turned to us and went, yeah, you two pricks. Um, I'll show you the piece. He said, sorry, (laughs) here's all your stuff. Get your stuff together. So we packed. I've never packed a rucksack up so quickly, but I was like, okay, (laughs) As if paul's right so paul just turned to me and said the only thing tom they might exchange us to another group see if they can get any money out of it that was the big concern in our minds we've heard that had happened before and down the path we went and he said um, there you go oh that's great Pertie. so we didn't call him Pertie, Signor. we turn <laughs> about that's great that's wonderful can you just tell us where to go what the hell he'd gone and in the jungle, it's amazing. Five feet in front of you, you can't see the per- per- person ahead of you. I mean, it's just so dense. And he, oh. So he walked out and got to his crossroads. And we turned left into this grassland area with a lovely view. We were in Colombia. And we were going, we were continuing the path 100 yards back. We crossed the border into South America. And it was just 100 or so yards back. We recognized the place where we were kidnapped 10 months <sighs> earlier. We That's where, wow. and Paul went, that's it. We are on the right road and we entered into this clearing and um got kidnapped again it was an absolute nightmare these people no. run at, yeah running at us it was will smith we named him will smith he was just like the hollywood actor but four foot shorter and he was all right will he was but he was so nervous. on the floor on the floor so on the floor we went all the guns came out and these blokes appeared out of the grass we recognized them all. oh it's you two what are you doing um <laughs> Um the guy up the road said we could go. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, do you want some food? Um, that we better be going now. No, Tom, um, do you want some food? I said, No, it's very kind. Um, I think we're going. And out came this revolver. Tom, um, would you like to stay for some love to, whatever you're cooking, thank you. So, and we stayed and had turkey. They gave us cheese, tangerines, tangerine, and soft drinks and stuff. They were guarding a radio tower, it looked like. And they said, you know where you're going? We'll give you a guide. And down the hill we went and we called him no idea. And he had just one eye and no idea. It was, the stuff came out of this, like a, worms and maggots and things came out of this oh, socket. No. Oh, he was, and we got to this crossroads again. And he said, oh, you can go now, Tom and Paul, that's great. And I, Which way do we go, Snow? Just to check. He's gone again. Bugger, we turned left, got it wrong and we were going to die. So we took the wrong turning and we the jungle was going to kill us. Five days of submerged in water, trying to cross this swamp. And we got trench rot. My feet had never split like that before. It was rough. Whenever they dried out, you'd sleep with your back on the swamp between two root balls of floating mangroves. Oh my goodness, Ben. All the food that we had was rotting. And Paul said, Tom, we've got to go back for directions, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so back up the hill we went to our captors this was never going to be a simple ending you did, then you
0: did have to go back in the direction because I yeah. heard that via Carl, like in like a Chinese yeah. whisper sense and yeah. I was like no that, I was like that can't be right that was, so it, back no, up the hill be... we went yeah wow. so I was like Paul we're going I,
1: to <laughs> apart from being kidnapped at the beginning that was the actual ambush that was my scariest moment I was like Paul is like Tom I've said to you before mate we, we're screwed if we don't and they're not yeah. going to shoot us now But they would have done it. So we followed these. We had a machete, but we'd stolen off them. Amazing. Paul was a fantastic (laughs) thief,
0: exceptional
1: thief. And all the food we had was stolen from them over the months in case we had to escape. And we'd slashed between us the sides of trees as markers. And we followed the markers Mm. up to to the camp and the radio masks. And you could see these people coming out. Not the same lot of people, people we didn't recognize this time and they looked but people did recognize us were just out came the guns and we're on our hands and knees guns behind our heads and we were like this is all over again and the, the one guy came up and went it's it's tom and paul it's thomas and pablo what the hell are you doing Signor, i'm so sorry we got lost did you bring the, if you bring the army back, we'll get army. No, 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 we haven't brought any army back. We're lost. And they said, you turn right, you tits, not left. So <laughs> do you want to stay for food? It's Christmas. Wonderful. We're going. <laughs> and we legged it down the hill, turned right. And within four or five hours of that, we were in this park, old deserted Park Rangers house with two Park Rangers on a oh, CB goodness. radio to the embassy in the Colombian capital. And it was extraordinary. And we were airlifted out by a speedboat, bulletproof cars, and a private jet 24 <laughs> hours later. Happy Christmas. Honestly, <laughs> it was unbelievable. And back here for Christmas Eve. Wow.
0: It that was is, the I mean, nuts. that is unbelievable.
1: That is wild. That's <laughs> it was totally. And what really did it for me was the ambassador's wife, who just <laughs> stared at us. In the, the in the Colombian capital of Bogota, the ambassador's wife, uh, she was just amazing. She just stared at us, and she didn't find the joke funny, which made it even more brilliant. Behind her back, she says, "I've got a memento of Colombia for you." Uh, this is the ambassador's wife. Just to remind you, Ben. And she had a box each of Ferrero Rocher she produced, <laughs> and me and Paul were like, "She's spoiling us." And she didn't find it funny. She just said, "Well, ambassador, what I give you Ferrero Rocher," and we didn't know what to say. And we took them off her and we demolished them in seconds and got on a <laughs> big, b- British Airways flight back home to the UK to my memorial service. My memorial service was coming up. Um, mm. Paul had had his, so they, was, they, were, they buried him in their own way. So they had to undo his own memorial service. Oh, it was the nuts. And over three years of traveling. And would I take back a second of that? No absolutely not i was not thinking that at the time during no. the captivity but now
0: absolutely not it's changed my life yeah wow like that that is that's wow that's so many twists and turns that's unbelievable i mean the bit about when the bit about when you kind of got almost re-kidnapped in that clearing i was thinking i was immediately just went into my head i said like, oh, okay that's where the thing that carl said about them needed to go back for a map i said like, i must be that little con- okay but no, you actually had to go back again. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I cannot, I don't know what words to use. I mean, that's just insane. It's totally um, inexpe- and the other thing which we couldn't believe is when they re released us
1: for the second time of asking, let's get that right, or released <laughs> us for the third time of asking in total was when they gave us money and we, here's the money, here's the money. They were paying, our captors, get this right, were paying for us to go because they couldn't stand me talking about Orchids any longer. So it was supposed to be the other way around. You pay your cap. No, they paid us to go. I mean, it was just ridiculous. But in all seriousness, obviously should never have been there and very very yeah. lucky to be alive you make your own luck yes to a degree but you can't help but feel in this case it's more than luck it's, it's a bit of the guy upstairs it's a combination of fate it's everything that just meant that we were supposed to survive that
0: yeah and and, and i think you you obviously handled it yeah very well i mean I'm surprised you're not kind of, I mean, obviously you, you, you're dedicated to the plants and flowers, but if you weren't, if you didn't have that, you you could probably be giving lectures and talks on how to handle a hostage situation to people in, in dangerous areas. Cause it sounded like you did it by the book. Um, wow. I mean, look, I'm I'm conscious of the time. So I, I do want to ask you a few more questions about the experience. Obviously I could, we could probably do another hour, <laughs> three hours on that, on just the, the your experience in the Daring Gap um but i'll try let's try and kind of i'll try and skim through a little bit just a couple of questions but it was just little things i was intrigued about um so kind of what how were they feeding you so like did you have like three meals a day what kind of food was it was were they giving you the same food as them and drink as well like uh, yeah it was pretty much three, three meals a day the exception was the walking oh ben the walking i mean that was hardcore
1: i mean it was hardcore yes anything that moved was shot from a human mm. we didn't eat human i we're not sure actually but we don't think we ate somebody else we're not actually sure um mm. that we literally was getting so desperate the remote the remoter areas they took us to the more remote the area the more difficult to get foodstuffs too uh they, they took us to areas i think to hide us is what they kept saying away from paramilitary and people like that so paramilitary so we ate anything. So monkey was often there. The hair from a monkey always got stuck in the soup and you ended up swallowing mm. a bit of its rubber finger and things like that. Armadillo yeah. was on the list. Uh, grubs, a spider or two. Depended how bad the situation was with the the lack of cow, basically. Cow and platanos. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, unripe bananas used as a potato substitute. So we ate pretty much eh, eh, eh anything that was there so dramatic seeing a whole troop of howler monkeys coming above our heads oh look at these monkeys they, they do make a real racket right above your head aren't they so gorgeous up went the m16s and they were just blown to bits out of the trees and the gorillas knew it was funny. they looked at us and they knew you could tell that these are all howler monkeys are a protected species internationally a protected species. they knew it they knew it, but they also realised, and I could sort of see their point in, in, a, in a way, that we would die without it. We were really struggling for them to get supply lines in. The water was a, a nightmare. So, I mean, I didn't literally wait for the rains to come and get it and curl a leaf up like you see in the films or something and then sort of use it as a filter to drink out of a leaf or something. I mean, that didn't sort of come about, really. I, you were drinking from the river. Yes, it was bold occasionally, but as long as you could just about see the palm of your hand in the water, just about, you thought, well, I'll give it a go. The outcome sometimes was horrendous. I mean, the dysentery was exceptional. You would bleed out of your bum. I mean, you just bleed. And you think, am I just going to bleed out? You know, what the hell is happening? But the body adjusted, that was early stages, having said that. Your body, in the end, could pretty much take anything, really. <laughs> it just adjusted and adapted remarkably yeah. well. But yeah. there was one stage when you you do go to the toilet and out of your bum comes blood and you think no that's not ideal. No,
0: that's not that's not, not a ideal. Thing. So in terms of that, the toilet then, how did that work? Did they watch you? Like, was there was there always somebody with you? Because I'm assuming it wasn't like I'll oh, go off into the jungle and we'll wait till we can't see you and because you might run away. But how what Actually, was it like? What was it, the... it was the latter. It's what you said. I mean that there was an element of trust
1: and they were right. I mean, where are you going to go? Yeah. Then? you know, And yeah. they did believe us. And I think, I like to think, again one of the other reasons they released us, I'm not fully answering the question here, but just to mention this, is that I really believe that they believed who we were. I yeah. really, a gardener and a mountaineer who shouldn't have been there. I really, wh- why would they release you? Otherwise, if you were CIA, they would have shot you or whatever. Yeah. So I do believe that. But no, the toilet thing was interesting. Very rarely, at the beginning, there was lots of tension, trust issues. They didn't know who we were. We had no idea who they were. So they didn't stand over us with the hole they dug in the ground. It was mostly that. If it was a long-term camp, otherwise it was crap anywhere. So we used to crack quite close close to their little huts. It really annoyed them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so a little tactic there was quite funny. Anyway, and but, it was <laughs> yeah. So they didn't. They were quite relaxed at the end. I mean, we, we picked up guns to give to them. were just guns everywhere. So we picked up their gun. Signor, here's your weapon. Oh, thank yeah. you, Tom. You know, yeah. it was a weird, and we, we sort of built, we, well, we, we'd earned that in a way, with that sort of trust. And, and you're trying to it, do
0: anything to build little bits of trust, I suppose, yeah. here and there, just to win a few points. Like, oh, yeah, yeah I'll pass exactly. your gun, and that way you see, I'm not going to shoot you the first time I get to touch exactly right. Um, I exactly mean, right. But in the first three or four weeks,
1: no, there wasn't even that thought. I mean, it was really tense. They watched the yeah. move. <laughs> Didn't quite stand over it at the toilet, but they were making sure they could see at least a leg yeah. behind a bush or something
0: here's an interesting question, one that I was thinking about and and obviously I don't really know what you're going to answer how you're going to answer it, but did you kind of over the course of the nine ten months, and again I'm obviously talking about one or two possibly individuals, not the kind of group in general that that took you but did you manage, did you build any relationship like any kind of positive relationship? obviously it would have had a side of complete negativity because they're holding you, but mm-hmm. was there any kind of elements of positive relationship that you built with any of the the people there that, that you're your hostage taker, your yeah. guards, however you yeah, want to
1: call them. I mean, this Stockholm Syndrome thing, obviously, we knew about me and Paul before we'd yeah. heard about <laughs> that and in other situations. And yeah, we did play on that a little bit. Whether it was all genuine, I think a lot of it was on both parts. I think there was a couple of guys that were there, one called Scarface, and he was amazing. He was a local Kuna Indian. So, both. A lot of the local population, a lot of the people that were holding us from were robbers or murderers or whatever they were escaping the conflict from all over Colombia. So these guys were coming from hundreds and ladies, hundreds of miles away into the jungle as a refuge to escape uh, the army or whoever paramilitary. But the locals, you could tell them apart a lot. They were quite good at tracking quite good at not getting us lost which was I thought, ever, always getting lost with them me and paul were better on our own before we got kidnapped with our captors they were all because they were city folk a lot of them really they didn't know mm. about the jungle but a couple of locals you could tell and we chatted occasion it was Ah, it was nice. It is right. Good morning and goodbye, and thanks for the food. You weren't getting into in-depth conversations about their lives. They would just mm. clam
0: up. You would try it, but they clammed up. They were not going to say anything. So There and, wasn't one who would like open up and and talk to you properly. Like when when the others weren't listening or around or anything like that. Like oh, I don't really want to be here. I don't want to be doing this. There wasn't that, yes, Scarface was that chap, but not not quite as. Um, not to that extent as
1: visible as that yeah to that extent but he's certainly you could tell he didn't want to be there he shouldn't be there he doesn't kidnap foreigners that's not his and he did say i miss my family and and an indication that i think both of them had been killed so he was then drawn into this sort of conflict and and so on but it, amazing character we called him scarface it was top yeah top right to bottom left is almost cut his head into two this wound I mean, i dare ask him, a looked like a machete wound of some sort. But he seemed to be, to me to be, you know, if you met him away from the situation in Panama, you'd get on well with him. You know, it mm. was a bit of that. But then the commandante would, would, would appear, or the personality of the commandante, then a better way of putting it, um, would be completely different to the new person coming in. So say he was quite nice, Will, Will Smith, for example, in came goofy, nasty. That aura was fed down to the personalities of every one of the foot soldiers, almost instantaneously. The guy didn't say, don't trust the tourists, they're all idiots and they're going to the CIA. He didn't even have to say that. His aura dictated without him having to say anything, issuing orders or whatever, how they were feeling. And then that Scarface would become a killer again. And it was a, a me and Paul were like, whoa, all that mental energy to try and get people on board, to humanise them. And so in the end, last three months, we gave up. It was a waste of time. And it was yeah. a total and utter waste of time. Because whatever you said to it, however much you got a bit of genuine information out of them, when it came down to it, when they're told to do something, they will do it. And that petrified. Mm. Uh, just shoot, Tom. He, he, he's a drug dealer. No problem at all. Can you dig the hole as well so he can fall into it? no problem and they would they wouldn't even hesitate however nice they were
0: to you when they were told to do something yeah so you're like okay it was petrifying on that note did you did you make your peace with death or did you kind of never really want to truly do that did you always fight against it no a, a peace with it or just Acceptance, not giving. That's kind
1: of what I mean. And yeah, acceptance, not by any means giving in the situation. You know, physically, we were were pretty good. Paul had a couple of wobbles, the dysentery, and everything else. That was almost like a catching a mild sore throat equivalent. We're so used to blood coming out of our bottoms, you know, so you just get used to all of that sort of stuff. But very much, yeah, I think towards the end we couldn't see an exit. We couldn't see they're not getting their their money. Therefore, generally what happens in these situations, you die. Yeah. Even though we had no control over getting them, it was not going to appear. There wasn't the money. It's not going to happen. But in their heads, they even saw mum in a helicopter in their heads with $50 million one morning. So you see, they were fantasizing, Ben. You see, And we knew whatever we said actually probably made it worse. So in the end, there was a little bit of acceptance. Paul was really getting down over it. So when we released, it literally was a bolt from the blue. I mean, that was literally out of nowhere. It totally went against the grain of the degradation of the situation. Should I say degradation, deterioration of the situation. Mm -hmm. Down, 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 bang, we released. I mean, it was out of nowhere. The night before, as I said to you, was when we were gonna try and escape because of the severity of the situation, but we got it wrong. Someone
0: else, whoever was in charge said, let them go. Have you, as people approached you to try and make a film out of it? Like, a, Over like Hollywood.
1: the Hollywood? Yeah, French and Saunders, the comedians here, that that they, they, they yeah. bought the rights for it for a couple of years. They loved it. The, it was quite a comical angle to some of the stories in the jungle as well and the hilarity of it as well as the seriousness of it. So they bought it. Over the years, people have, but it usually fizzles out. Me, me and Paul mm. still reckon they'll never do anything with it. But People occasionally ring up. Warner Brothers liked the idea of orchids and guns and,
0: and all this sort of stuff. But no, nothing's materialized. I'm not sure it ever will. Yeah. I mean, what do I know? But that, that would sell. That, that, that <laughs> do you would reckon be, it would sell? Like, yeah. I mean, hearing it in person, it's like another <laughs> level, like hearing the actual, the twists and turns like that. That's a no brainer. Like, uh, come on, somebody, somebody's got to do it. I've got a friend who's a filmmaker. I'll see what, see what we oh, can do. Absolutely, um, let's do it. <laughs> but look, looking back, you obviously, I mean, I'm assuming I know the answer to this, but you, you realize how lucky you were, right? Because obviously there were other, like, People have been murdered out there quite regularly, mm. I think. Like Carl Bushby, he mentioned somebody to me, uh, that Jan Philip Branush, a Swedish yeah. tourist that mm. was yeah, shot in the head, executed, I think, near Rio Susio. Exactly area. where we um, were. And it was exactly by the far Exactly where we were. Yeah. Guerrillas as well. That, that's who is suspected to have taken you, right? I think that's who they think it was. Not that anybody knows for certain. That's right. And we we, we 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 almost, me and Paul, we rang each other up, actually.
1: Yeah, he's turned into an amazing, his amazing friend, Paul, fantastic chap. And he, we heard about the Swedish chap and we reckon that was exactly, we, we were, were at Rio Susio. That's where they took us to the most southerly point, well into Colombia now. And we reckon it was almost at the exact spot where where we can picture it, where he was murdered Mm -hmm. almost. And his wife, Chinese wife, I think, I think it was his wife, or going going to be wife, sadly, I think as well. It was all sad anyway. Uh, She Mm -hmm. got in contact and said, you know, through the church, is there anything that I can do? And then, of course, we then heard, heard the news and so on. And it's, yeah, probably the same guys that we were with that killed him. Uh, or if not, a youngster at the time that we were with who now is the commandant who killed him. And, yeah, it, some overlap. It, right, right, some overlap, right, Ben. It, it, it's so sad, isn't it? I can't say whether he was trying to escape, whether he tried to resist or whether... It doesn't no. seem the case from the story. They just turn around and went, we've had enough. Mm. Um, yeah, he was trying to cro- cross it south to north, very rarely, if I've got that right. He had just started the journey, if I've got that right. Who's going oh, from wow. Colombia to Panama, which often isn't the case. But and what's it like now? I mean, it's that that's a very sad story. And more recent well, in the last two or three years, county it's become more dangerous. There's not the war anymore officially, but it's all all of the immigration cut ca- coming up from South America. It's a huge migration route now. It always has been quite big with the war ceasing with the well, gun stopping to a degree. It's now just this huge migratory route, but actually somebody said the guns are all still there and all these people in charge of all that, they're paid a fortune to access, to give people the right of passage across this strip, very poorly militarized still by the Panamanians. It's pretty much lawless land still. And it's actually probably more dodgy now than it was back in the day. Lots mm. of different factions fighting over, being paid a fortune, these guys with guns they see themselves as perhaps a tour guide <laughs> taking across all these immigrants. Cause without guides, you get lost.
0: Wow. Um, here's the big question then, I guess so we, you said that you believe that they, they believed your story. Um, and I think that sounds legit. I believe you, that they believed you. I, I think I absolutely, if they didn't, then why would, yeah, they would have killed you. But the real question is, cause that's not enough by itself for them to keep you alive. I don't think necessarily. Right. It, because, I mean, just look at this guy. That, that's the perfect example. Look at Yan. So why do you think you were kept alive? I, th- I think it's a combination of things lightly touched upon. I think that we didn't
1: show we weren't going to run away. They were, trusted us entirely. They didn't feel threatened by us in any sense. We were so opposite of them. We were not uh, just we weren't unpredictable at all. We were very same day, same thing. Emotions, hardly smiled, cry that much. They sort of, they trusted us. I do believe in the end, Ben, they believed us. I don't think until the end, some of them did. Mm. And some of them really wanted to kill us. But just a combination of things. I mean, on paper, there's no money. They didn't get an exchange of prisoner, a food drop. Perhaps we thought there'd be a food drop in exchange for us. That's been talked about. Nothing. We literally we cost them time energy and money that we exhausted their supplies i mean we ate so much we went to places that they didn't want to go to because they were trying to hide us and i think perhaps a bit of good fortune being truthful at all the points to them as best you can about who we were and what we were actually doing and just being a nice human being. Now, I know in the bigger scheme of things that that still will cost you life, but I just feel at the end that they did believe who we were, got fed up with us. Everyone joking, oh, Tom, they got fed up with you and Paul talking about plants. There's an element of that. It was Christmas, goodwill gesture a bit of luck the guy upstairs giving us a bit of a hand to that combination of things but there was no political pressure particularly there in the middle of nowhere they don't care if someone says you should be kidnapping but we're in the down gap we can bury them you'll never be found again then you'll never find your remains again so mm. there's no problem with hiding you in a pit you'd never be found again i do believe we touched a few heartstrings but thank God, those two at the end, Goofy and the bitch, weren't in charge. Otherwise, we would be shocked. The, the look of pleasure uh, of torturing us uh, when it came to
0: it and then to kill it. They just couldn't wait. Yeah. Couldn't wait to kill us. That could be one of the uh, the titles for the film, depending on which angle they go with. Goofy and the bitch, if they want to focus on the uh, <laughs> that, that angle. Um, just very briefly, tell me a little bit about the kind of the aftermath. So, like, the first time you spoke to family... When you got home the emotions the the reception and like obviously there was a memorial for you that was planned like that's wild just tell me a little bit about all of that kind of i bet it was like a roller coaster just an absolute blizzard of emotions just that hit you in the face. A Total
1: Um, blizzard. Yeah. (laughs) Getting back to to North Terminal Gatwick, I mean, was just an extraordinary experience and to be let off the plane before anybody else, including people in first class with my sort of cracked toes and my flip flops. I mean, my feet were trashed from the jungle experience and just not knowing where the hell we were. It was all just a blur and to go, get out of the plane. And I always wondered, Ben, when you leave the plane, before you go on, usually you've got the walkway to go on before you get to immigration or pick your bags up. Always would leave a plane on the left-hand side, there's a set of stairs that are usually screened off that you walk down. I always wanted to do that. Well, we did that day. Escort <laughs> the first off the plane, apart from a couple of stewards, a couple of air hostesses. And we turned left down those steps, walked under the plane as they were pulling it up with literally the bit of wood to keep the, the front wheel in place, full on British Airways plane underneath the plane we walked it was amazing into this press conference bang canadian media cnn the local seven notes chronicle newspaper from down the road what and then we were like what my mum came to Colombia to try and find me really paul's dad flew to panama parents that had never met before were brought together by these two two idiots (laughs) at tom and paul i mean it was just what what how did mum how do you know paul's oh, good to see you mum it's been three years i only found <laughs> you now three times from the embassy just before i left to get back home i mean it was just bong there were no not many tears though it was just as mum says we deserve to have you back she said it was really sweet but yeah. all her stories she was shot at um she didn't go into the daring gap but she ended up going all over columbia trying to uh, to find me and gets information i mean it was she turned into an investigator it was amazing wow. paul's memorial service there was actually a legal requirement with that to undo it or something he had to sort of reverse the memorial service it was bizarre <laughs> mum was coming up and mum said she was due to organize it soon but she was going to wait till the year was out before she did it and to come back home to lullingston to see the rector in the, the little chat chapel here at where i live a parish church and i walked in there for a little to sit down on a pew just for a little bit of you know thank you time and the priest was in there and he turned around saw me went aren't you tom and he collapsed on the altar Yeah, he was gone. He said, "You're walking dead." I can't deal with this. He was out. It was amazing, absolutely amazing. So Mum was like, ran into church. Oh, sorry, rector. Oh no, he's on the floor. I forgot to tell him that you're not dead. You know, because everyone, everyone but Mum thought I was dead. Basically, yeah there and, and oh, wow. relations turned up it was christmas so it's coincidentally everyone was coming around on christmas day the next day ben, to um to have it was all arranged to have you know your festivities so my aunt rang up and said tom great you're alive it's been a few years since i've seen you i've got to bring an extra set of of, of cutlery haven't i i think because you're here so and it, i was like sorry yeah extra food i'm doing in the tur- turkey this year so i'll make an extra large turkey this year. i mean literally everyone was really cool about it and it, but it was really bizarre and the first then christmas was gone the buzz was over if you like into the new year 2001 and then just in my bed just nightmare after nightmare don't remember particularly mm. what about but a haze of colombian experience i suppose and just sweat my bed sheets were soaked and it was just then that was it two weeks finished and not a bad night's sleep since you know it's it was very much Just a way of venting it all, I suppose, that kind of thing. But the biggest thing to come out of it, which I haven't touched upon, but saved my life in another way, really, especially escapism wise, psychologically wise, was was building the the world garden. It was in my diary. I was starting to scribble three months into our captivity. Uh, just as a way of escaping the whole thing, I used to write a diary for the first three months in captivity. And three months in, they said, you've got five hours, mate, before we blow your heads off. It was quite, that was Scarface, the Indian chap. Wow. It was quite intense, dark times. The commandante was, he was a, he was a nasty chap. Um, he got, he captured a few of these little parrot, parakeets type thing and cut their legs off and got super glue and stuck them on bits of wood, the stubs. I mean this he was and he was really keen to He wanted to, to to screw paul i think and it was all quite intense
0: ben it was mad and they really told you at five hours
1: yeah five hours before we <laughs> blow your heads off and i opened up my diary it was almost paul was like oh bloody hell <laughs> and we were we were incarcerated at any time we really were we weren't in the, the tent so it was a big hut they built for us divided into two so we couldn't see or speak to each other for about six seven weeks June, July, yeah, 2000. I'd opened up my diary with no hesitation and started to scribble out a miniature map of the world in the two acre wall garden here at Lullingston, which has turned into the, the world garden, showing you where plants originally come from through these amazing plant hunters and what they all what they all brought back and including some of my plants they brought back all planted out in the miniature Australia, in its actual miniature shape, Asia, whatever it's, it is. And Mexico's here as well at Lullingston. And now 17 years on, it's it's really, really taking off. So it was about three or four years to get it going after I got back. And then it's now saving the place, if you like, by attracting visitors to come to to where we live. Did I ever think that would happen? I mean, I didn't think I'd even do the garden in reality or survive the day, the five hours, you're gonna die. But it just shows you how powerful plants are in horticulture by just escaping from a situation of a horrible death you can Mm. then draw a garden and I never thought I'd actually do it on terra firma but here we are and that's my focus so I mean gardening's so therapeutic and plants and we're talking about window boxes earlier that you're going to plant up this summer and at your place and gardening is so therapeutic but in this case it's more than that Ben every time you go into that garden that wouldn't exist without that experience Mm. and it's a double therapy it's really powerful and it's a talk about a mission in life I mean that's me set that's me set so yeah i I wouldn't take it back a second that's amazing wow
0: i mean look I, i did obviously want to talk about the world garden a bit more and about flowers and plants but i know that you have to get going and maybe maybe we can do this again soon that'd be great that'd be maybe, absolutely great yeah absolute pleasure i, I haven't done like back to backs but maybe we can kind of find a time for say next week or something like that and we can kind of have one dedicated to the uh the, the botany and the flowers and plants ben, and stuff.
1: awesome cause... absolutely awesome yeah be brilliant okay. be absolutely brilliant
0: wicked well look th- i mean this today was amazing talking about your experiences just i haven't got the words this was just mind-blowing stuff um yeah just wonderful and I, I appreciate you so much you digging into your, your memories and and sharing it all with me like what absolutely well thanks for having me and it's also so great to, to share
1: it to share the passion and to share that with people it's why i'm alive and I, and I love it as you can tell
0: yeah definitely i can everybody needs to find a passion like you have a passion for this uh, the world would be a better place absolutely <laughs> before i let you go i just is there anything you wanted to say to anybody watching or listening it, it can be anything you want to say Um, It could be about the world garden. It can be some words of wisdom, how to survive a hostage situation. Anything you want to leave our viewers and listeners with.
1: Whatever dreams you want to fulfill, whatever age you're at, whatever barriers are in front of you to fulfill those dreams, smash those barriers down. If you want to do it in your heart, you believe you want to do it, whatever it might be, just go and do it. No bounds. No, no bounds.
0: You can do whatever you want. Love it. Thanks so much, Tom
1: take care and uh, i'm looking forward to speaking pleasure. to you again absolute pleasure thanks for having me ben pleasure thanks cheers ben goodbye
0: Bye. thank you for listening to that conversation with the legendary tom Hartdike. i hope you enjoyed it and if you did stay tuned for our next episode again with tom this time about plants and his world garden please check out the links in the description to find out more about tom and to get more information about said world garden and why not check out our links while you're there be nice be happy be cool